Defense Review Podcast for 2014. I'm Richard Stupart, and today we'll be returning to a part of the Eastern DRC that's often left out in media coverage to talk about the rebel group ADF Nalu. Depending on who you're listening to, the ADF has been variously described as being everything from a minor act in the DRC to Al-Shabaab's local representative in the area. To help sift fact from fiction, we're going to talk today to journalist Caroline Hellyer, who spent a number of years following the subregion of the DRC to find out more about the group. Thanks for joining the podcast, Caroline. My pleasure. So perhaps starting off first with geography, in the case of the ADF, we're not talking about the traditional Eastern DRC, are we? This is more north of the uh, Goma, Bukavu, Kivus kind of area. Yeah, that that's right. Um, it, it's called the Grand North, you know, it, the big north. Um, and it's the north of North Kivu um, from, from the... Um, Rwenzori Mountains, it runs along the side of the Lake Albert and down to Warunga Park. And it's almost like a different world to to the Goma area. Um, it's cut off quite considerably in terms of infrastructure. Um, you don't have the same internet connections or phone connections are not strong there. Um, and obviously the roads are non-existent. So it, it's almost like another world up there. And the group that we're talking about here, the ADF Nalu, they originated in Uganda and then moved across into Congo to establish bases? Um, in some ways, yes. I mean, they're an amalgamation of, of different groups, um, both both the, the Konzo and Toro along the Ugandan border. They, they were little kingdoms that already had... Um, um, movements to to fight against the regime in Kampala. Um, so uh, then you had these other groups that joined them, including from from central Uganda, some of the um, Islamic side of it. Um, you you had a whole variety of people, and they did move across the border, um, but. Because that border is kind of artificially imposed in the first place, there was a lot of cultural ties already between the people on the Ugandan side of the border and and the Beni, um, you know, Grand North side of the border. They, they speak almost the same language. They're you know they're culturally the same. Nandi, they call it Nandi in the Grand North and and Bakonjo in Uganda, but it's the same people. And then unlike a lot of the rebel groups that people typically hear about, if, certainly from the Kiwis, who are tied up to the kind of history between Rwanda and the DRC, the politics of ADF Nalu are substantially different, right? They're far more focused on, on issues of Uganda, and but have changed over the years, that, that agenda. Uh, well, yeah, they were, they, they were initially um, an anti-Museveni, you know, and we're talking at the the end of Idi Amin's era and Bote, and were very much anti-Museveni um, and the Ugandan side of things. But they've moved on from this. I mean, that, that still exists. That's still very much, you know, a, a stated modus operandi of the Arief Nalu. But at the same time, you know, that I see them I see them as a as a multiple of things. You know, it's very hard to just nail them down and say they're this or they're that. They're a bit like Russian dolls, really. Um, so they also have this um, 
kind of, uh, if you like, um, mercenary side as well, in as much as, you know, they they have been available for hire, if you like. And you'd mentioned in, in a report previously that they're tied to business and political elites, certainly in the town of Beni nearby. Is that what you mean when you talk about them being for hire, or is there evidence that, that they're essentially mercenary networks extend perhaps wider than that? Um, I think it's probably both. I mean, cer- certainly um, they've been aligned to, to, to local um, groups and local big men um, right from the start of, of their time in Congo. Um, they were hired by Mobutu to, to you know, a, a, as part of his destabilization campaign down the border there but um, you know at the same time I think that, that there's I think one of the problems when people look at rebel groups is they do tend to see them as very kind of solid entities and I think that away from the sort of central nucleus of Aliyevnala they're quite um, they're quite fluid so you know, and then there has been a, a long history of armed protection rackets in the area. Anyway, not just by Arif Nalu, but by other gunmen, including sometimes members of the military. So you know, it, it's in this sense. It's in. It's almost, if you like, in a culture that they have existed. And how far, so they were originally backed by, as you, as you said, Mobuto and to some degree by Khartoum. Those relationships seem to have long since disappeared. Is it clear who is backing them at the moment? So where they're drawing money from? Is it integration in the local economy? I, I understand there's gold mining in that sort of region, particularly across the border with Uganda. Um, but what do people actually know about where they're, they're obtaining finances from? Well, we know that they're obtaining finances from a whole variety of sources. Um, from the most local level, you know, they, they run, they run the, the taxis, motorcycle taxis and taxis in Beni um, and Butembo and in other parts. They also were operating uh, pharmacies. Um, they were involved in 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 wood wood business, logging, and gold and things like this. And then you have the protection rackets. Um, but we also know that they they get funding from abroad. This has actually been documented both by the UN group of experts, but also locally as well. Um, and we know that that comes from a variety of different sources. Whether we can pin it down to, for instance, Sudan or whatever, I, I, I don't think it. I don't think it works like that. I, I don't think they have one unique source of funding. Um, and B, we just don't know, you know, at this point. But I think there's many, uh, many um, indicators, if you like. Talking about some of the the activities they do, sort of protection rackets, that kind of thing, it draws in focus the question of how exactly is, is it useful to think about a group like ADF Nalu. So there are certainly people who have highlighted the Islamic aspect, talking about the rise of Islamic insurgency in East Africa. There are others who maybe would interpret ADF Nalu in a kind of traditional military lens, so in Allah M23, for example. And then there's maybe the, you know, observing them as simply a kind of local criminal mafia. 
How useful are those different paradigms, do you think, in, in trying to understand how to deal with them and how they're the same or different to other groups that the UN and, and friends have been trying to deal with in the Eastern DRC? Um, I think one of the problems in dealing with the area of Nalu has been a problem of analysis. Um, I think that there is a, a very conventional or, um, you know, there's a very set way uh, of looking at uh, rebel groups in international policy. And, you know, that sees them as very clearly delineated. You know, kind of like you get those maps with the, with the little colors on them, you know, there's this group and there's that group and, and so on. And I think that, you know, on a very, very basic level that can be useful, but beyond that, I think it actually impedes our thinking about them. And I think this has been part of the problem with Adi and Nalo, um, that we need to get away from this idea of a discrete rebel group with, you know, very fixed boundaries around it and see it as something, um, I think, very, very contemporary. So, um, you know, you have these wider, much, much wider connections. I mean, apart from anything else, the leadership of Adi Nalu, the, the senior members are dispersed around different countries. Um, although you have Jamil Makulu is allegedly in in the Grand North, um, there are other other power brokers in the organisation, and they are not in in the Congo. Um, and so people form networks, and and networking, you know, just as we promote networking within our own fields of endeavour, you know, it, it, it's exactly the same with. With with Ali Abnalo and with rebel groups like this, so all kinds of alliances can be formed for whatever length of time or for whatever contingency. Um, but I think that when we start trying to see them, uh, you know, we 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 won't find a solution to a group like Ali Abnalo if we see them in strictly conventional terms. They're more fluid than that. It would be interesting to talk a little bit maybe about the, the leadership of the group. So what what is known about how, how it's structured? And you mentioned that the leaders are dispersed amongst different countries. Where specifically are they, or the ones that are known? Um, I think that's difficult to say, and I think it's difficult to say at this point. You know, I could, I can, you can identify people at different points in the past. Um, you know, there's been attempts, for instance, at... at Top level, um, you know, amnesty and demobilization talks, and those have had to to include several different people. But whether those people are still in those same positions now, it is hard to say. You know, and I, I certainly wouldn't like to to commit myself to say that I have no evidence to back those things right now. But we know that the leadership, we know that they have strong connections to the United Kingdom. Uh, we know that, that they have connections to Tanzania. We know, of course, that they have very strong links in Uganda. Um, and other countries, too, have been put in the frame. And there have been claims, certainly recently, that ADF Nalu enjoys or is trying to court connections to groups like um, Al-Shabaab in, in Somalia. How, how far are those true and how far is that just speculation at the moment? Um... <laughs> Yeah, that's everybody's favorite question. 
Um, as far as concrete links to Al-Shabaab in Somalia, um, you know, nobody has shown me any evidence of this. Um, Al-Shabaab, once again, are, are, are a localized phenomenon, um, you know, to, to their area, to Somalia, just as Ariaknalu also are localized to their area, which happens to be a border of two countries. Um, but having said this, there is absolutely, it, it, I mean, you don't need to have evidence to, to, to know that they're not going to be living in a vacuum, um, that they are going to be making contact with people for whatever reason, whether it's to do business or it's ideological reasons. But we know, we know, we know that there has been uh, traffic and people backwards and forwards to the camps in Beni. Um, we know a couple of years ago that there was trainers coming from uh, Morocco, uh, and we know that those trainers come from other countries. Um, so, uh, and you know, the the, the whole Tabliki. Um, uh, culture, if you like, also has its own networks, you know. So I think it's gone beyond speculation. We know, we have, there is enough evidence. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that I have seen anything that confirms to me at this point that they're linked to Al-Shabaab specifically. And in trying to deal with them, what has been the history of the relationship between, so, the Congolese troops, Manasco and the ADF? There's History has had a number of instances where people from ADF, for example, have uh, variously tried to or engage in minor DDR programs. There have been a number of operations against them. I mean, have there been, overall, have there been much success in rooting them out over the years, or is it just kind of a, a give and take every, every so often? Um, actually, DDR has been pretty unsuccessful. Um, there's been a remarkable lack of interest in it. Or if there have been an interest in it, it doesn't last for long for one reason or another. Um, and at one point, Uganda even had an office. There were two offices for demobilization for the ADF in Beni. And Uganda, the, U the Ugandan army actually ran an office there for a while. And I think the Congolese office got, got a few people and I don't think the Ugandan office got any, or if they got any at all, they got literally one. There's been very, very little interest in, in DDR there. And there's been operations by Manusco, um, you know, there's, there's been operations against, and there was Operation Ruanzori, which started in, in 2010, and was ongoing up, in, up until this year. Um, but they've achieved little or nothing. Um, the army was horrendously under-resourced. They were um, literally bivouacked in twos and fours, scattered here and there with no, no communication facilities or transport or whatever a lot of the time. Um, and when they did make any headway, they would complain that they would then get the brakes put on them from Kinshasa. 
So, um, you know, and then of course there is a bit of a revolving door anyway between the army, between militias, between um, different groups in the area. You know, they're all porous. So, uh, and MONUSCO has largely, apart from when they accompanied FARDC for, for an operation in the past against the ADF, which caused massive displacement and, you know, had a, a, a very negative impact on the lives of local people, it still didn't really achieve anything. And other than this, MONUSCO have not really had that much to do with ADF. To be honest, in my experience, up until now, MONUSCO were almost invisible up there. It's not like Gama where you see, uh, you know, white vehicles everywhere. It's really not like that up there. And in, in the region that ADF is operating, are there um, particular Mai Mai groups there in the same way as down in, in the Kivus? And is there, are there any relationships between those Mai Mai groups and, and ADF? Oh, yeah. I mean, in Beni alone, last summer in Beni territory, there was uh, 15 known rebel groups. Um, and that's without them, you know, I, I'm not even counting the kind of little posses of bandits that, that rise up here, there and everywhere, because it's all become, you know, kidnapping has become a, 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 a growth business in the in Bani territory. Um, and, and these groups, these rebel groups have different varying histories, you know, some of them are fairly recent, some of them have been um, in the bush for, for a very, very long time. You have Paraco and different different wings of Paraco there. You had Maimai Hilaire, which is Hilaire Combi, who, who um, you know, he was an FARDC de defector encouraged by, by Nayam Wissi, uh, who is one of the big men in the area, um, who also had good contacts with, with the ADF in the Grand North, you know. So, there's, uh, once again, you, you have to see all these things as very porous. I think it's very contingent, you know. When, it, when, when they have business to do or they, they have a reason, you know, when, when Benny Prison, they stormed Benny Prison when I was, was there uh, earlier on this year. Um, and from what I understand of that, that was a mixture of, of, of different Mai Mai rebels from the area that carried that out. You know, it, it was like a kind of hired hit job. So what exactly has been the priority of, of the UN in, in this area? So. I'm not sure if they they have a presence in Beni. They certainly have a larger presence up in in Bunia, and down towards uh, Goma. Are there I mean are there other groups that that just occupy their attention more than ADF and, and the Mai Mai here, or is it just too few troops and too big an area? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the Bunia, yes, of course. The, there's there's a, a big UN. Monusco base there, and they're much more visible. And there is a Monusco base in Beni too. Um, and you know, um, and you see them, and you pass it if you go out on the road to Oicha and all the rest of it. But I can honestly tell you that until this latest um, force intervention brigade situation arose, you didn't see Monusco doing an awful lot up there, and they really were not that visible. 
Um, and in fact, you just used to forget about them because uh, that's how it was with local people as well. You know, they, they, they couldn't see any um, really good reason for them to be there. And is there any indication that that might be changing? That the, certainly in, with the exit of M23, there was a lot of speculation about, well, where is the, um, the UN going to put its attention next? Um, it seems to have reverted back down towards the Kivus and some of the armed groups there. But, I mean, is, is there any indication there's, there's a change in that attitude that the UN is taking a more interest, interested stance towards groups like ADF? Well, yes, of course. No, I know that they're very concerned about the ADF. They've kind of finally woken up to the Grand North to some degree. I mean, the, the security situation in the Grand North is beyond belief um, and has been for a long time. And it's been very difficult to, to, to get that picture out to the wider world. You know, everybody's been very focused on Goma. Um, and generally speaking, the media likes a bit of bang bang and the M23 story is a much easier story to tell. Um, you know, the, 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 the Benny ADF Nalo story is, is a complicated story to tell. Um, and yes, the UN are paying attention. Um, and indeed, operations uh, allegedly started today, a joint FARDC and, and MONUSCO operations. Uh, I'm not sure quite what that's going to involve at this point. I think it's sadly premature. Um, I don't think that a conventional military approach will um, solve the insecurity problems in the area. And you've uh, talked about, about in previous reports how you think perhaps part of the solution needs to be tied to dealing with the, the economic base of, of groups like ADF. And could you talk a little bit more about that that kind of approach? Yeah, well, it's not just it. The thing is, is it's not just the economic. You know, what you have to understand, or or, or what I've had to understand about the ADF Nalu and their situation in Bernie territory, is that it's very, very much it's lo very locally rooted. Um, and if you like, you can imagine it like a tree, you know, with these ever more finer roots reaching out into the surrounding land. And so you've got to address the, the bigger issues, you know, these, they're not just economic issues, but you have networks of people, I mean, not everybody who's in a rebel group lives in the bush in a camp, you know. Many of them might live next door to to whoever in the village or in the town. They may fight some of the time. They may not have anything to do with it the rest of the time. Um, you know, it, it, it's just a lot more complicated. And so those local political levels need addressing as much as the the other issues. And if they're not addressed at the same time, if some form of security, you know, because the insecurity, the kidnappings and attacks can happen in Benny in the middle of the night, in the center of town, you know. It's not necessarily a rebel group comes into town with their guns. You know, a lot of this is very um, insidious, it's very hidden. 
and hard to define. And so if it's not addressed on those levels, um, local community, local political levels, um, and, and establishing, you know, a much more solid sense of security in the area, then a straightforward military operation is just not going to work because what's going to happen is they're just going to melt into the community and reappear when, when Monusco has left. Is there a sort of genuine popular support for ADF in, in certain areas or there's, is it more of a kind of coercive influence? I think it's, it's a whole bunch of things, you know, that people are, t- are terrified of them. Um, so there is the level of terror. People depend on them economically. Um, I think, as, as I've said in some of, of the pieces I've written, they, they used to pay wages or they employ people. You know, it's not all forced labor. So when you have no economic ac- options and, and that's on offer, um, you know, so the, the support is uh, in all kinds of, of ways once again, you know, both the terror and the fear, but also, you know, a reciprocity, if you like. Of, of different levels. And moving back to sort of on the military side, actions taken by, say, Manaska and um, the FADC, say from today, I mean, what is the quality of the, the FADC commanders in um, the Grand, Grand North compared to, say, for example, in the Kivus in the run up to the assault on M23? Kinshasa made sure to pull a bunch of commanders out of the field and generally clean up the command structure ahead of any operations. Is there any evidence that that approach has been followed again, or is this just using the FADC forces that, that were in the area already? Well, no, no, no. They, I mean, you know, this is how the whole Mamadou situation arose, was because they um, because they brought in, you know, Republican Guard troops from, from uh, outside of the area. But you have the 1st and you have the 8th up there, and and once again, it it's very variable, you know. I've met absolutely first class FARDC commanders in in Beni. Um, I've also seen, with my own eyes, absolutely atrocious behaviour, one way or the other, on the, on on the side of the military command in the area, um, you know. The problem is the wider problem of the Congolese army, and you know it, it's not a professional army yet. It's on its way, though. I did see it, the introduction of biometric payments in Beni, for instance, um, with with biometric identity and direct payments to bank accounts for the soldiers there. But they were phenomenally under-resourced, um, and and this is another complication. Because you, you're bringing together, uh, you know, troops from all these different places. They're not troops that are used to, to working together all at the same time. So, you know, to, to me it all seems a little bit like jumping the gun. I, 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 it concerns me that they've started the operations against the ADF so quickly. I felt like the two very high-profile... ADF attacks were, in the last month or two, were deliberately designed to this end, to, to push them into fighting early. 
um, and I think it's a mistake. Do you, do you think the ADF's strategy to this would, would again just be to, to melt away and hunker down until the assault passes and then sort of gradually push back? No, I don't know about that. I think they, I think they will fight ferociously. I think that they're very disciplined. They're very, um, you know, at the nucleus, that is. Uh, they're very disciplined. They're, they're, they've, you know, they've had training. They've had funding. Um, on the edges, different matter. A, a lot of the people that are going to be pushed into fighting on their behalf have been abducted or coerced into fighting. Um, so that's never going to be good for a first-class fighting force. But, but you know, we've, we've already seen that they fight ferociously. Um, you know, every, every, um, every report I have heard has, has, of fighting with ADF in the last year or so has, has amounted to the same thing. They're very, very strong fighters. And how well resourced are they in terms of military equipment? Do they possess the same sort of heavy weapons that M23, for example, had? No, no, they're, they're not. I don't think they've got the heavy goods to the level that M23 had by any means. Um, but they're pretty well resourced. And, and more importantly, they've got people behind them. And this is, you know, this is where we need to be really careful, you know, because once again, they're a border, they're a border um, group, and those borders are really, really porous. Um, so it wouldn't be very difficult if, 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 um, if a mischievous party wanted to escalate the conflict, it wouldn't be very difficult to, to up the ante with weapons, let's put it that way. And has Uganda shown any interest in, in crushing ADF or participating in, in any of the operations planned against them? Oh, well, that's a sore point. Um, <laughs> Uganda always shows an interest. Um, but they have a bit of a, a, a negative record, to say the least, of crossing the border into Congo. Uh, Congo most categorically does not want the Ugandan army on their on their soil, although they've just had a meeting in Beni, um, and this was allegedly and ostensibly for information exchange, um, but this is where it all gets very, very, very complicated, um, because we know that in the past there were ex-Ugandan military connected with ADF Nalu, former Ugandan military. Um, it's too sensitive a subject for Congo, so Congo are not not going to want that to happen. Would Uganda be concerned at all that, that ADF might one day wander back across to their side of the border, or is security on the Ugandan side well enough to, to shut that down? Well, of course Uganda will be concerned, and they have good reason to be concerned. Um, you know, uh, they have good reason to be, and, and this is, but this is the problem. And this is always the problem with these situations. They have, they have a genuine reason to be concerned, but they have had a history in the past of using their concerns for, for, for other ends. So, you know, the situation is very complicated, and I'm absolutely sure that the UPDF have well got their eyes on the border. Um, they've said in the past that they will ensure that it's and that they see very clearly their role is to, to stop anybody who comes across the border to catch them. Um, 
but you know how far that's going to go i don't know at this point and then finally without asking you to predict the future what do you think are going to be some of the key issues to watch in how the un and the FARDC are trying to deal with ADF in the coming months? Um, I think there's a, going to be a major problem of IDPs, um, internally displaced people. There is already quite a big problem of internally displaced people. Uh, I mean, some of the population of, of Beni are, are still the people that fled Bunya in the Aturi War. Um, you know, <laughs> haven't got over the first lot of IDPs. Um, there's there, there's going to be a lot more displacement. There is already a lot of people. They're not in camps. They're living with locals. They're staying in in local communities around Benny and in Benny. Those numbers are going to escalate considerably, and that's going to be very very worrying because there aren't any facilities. Um, it's also going to affect people's livelihoods, which are already, I mean, the thing is, is all these things have already been happening anyway. It's been so insecure up there. People haven't been able to work in their fields. You pass endless deserted villages. Um, you see the crops rotting in the fields. The international organizations have not been operating there, apart from, you know, like MSF or with or if they're using local partners, but generally speaking, most international organizations are on lockdown. They're not, they're not working in the field there. Um, so all of these kind of things are just going to become humanitarian access. is going to be really difficult. Um, but I think it's going to be a bit of a chase me Charlie situation. You know, I, I just don't see it developing in the same way that the situation with M23 did. So let's see. Let's see. It's very, very early days yet. Thank you very much for your time.